the headlines on this most unusual of Saturdays. Russian troops take wrong turn into Ukraine. Los Angeles anti-aircraft guns shoot at Phantom Menace. Andrew Johnson collects first-ever presidential impeachment badge. Plus, don't miss our exclusive on the world's first underwater bakery, where the bread is always soggy and the fish are always biting. Those are the headlines. News so fresh, it's still wriggling. News Bang, the only news source that doesn't need a safety net. 2022. The year is 22 and it's been a busy month for the Russians. Bored of invading their own socks in the morning, they've now set their sights on Ukraine. This latest bout of expansionism has left everyone scratching their heads, except maybe geography teachers who saw this one coming since Crimea was annexed back in 2014. The conflict has escalated faster than a Harrods lift during the January sale, with Putin eyeing up more real estate than Kardashian sisters at a foreclosure auction. So far, Mother Russia has gobbled up 20% of her neighbor's landmass by June 2020. That's enough territory to fit 14 Leningrad stadiums or three Donbass regions. Casualties have been high. In fact, there are so many displaced Ukrainians that centre parks across Europe are fully booked until next fallout shelter season. Refugees flee en masse, creating queues at passport control longer than British Airways check-in desks during Easter break. In 1942. On this day in 1942, Los Angeles was gripped by panic as the city's defences opened fire on unidentified flying objects. The incident, later known as the Battle of Los Angeles, began when eagle-eyed G.I. Joe Schmo spotted something in the sky over Santa Monica Beach. It was big, silver, and had a dome on top, he recalled. I thought it was one of those new Japanese jobs. The US military scrambled their anti-aircraft guns and let rip at the unidentified object. All night they fired, but to no avail. We couldn't hit a monkey at that range, said Major Hapless from his bunker. All we managed to do was shoot down our own weather balloon. As dawn broke, it emerged that what they'd been firing at were not enemy aircraft, but migratory swans high on Thames estuary cocaine. General Slaphead addressed the press. Ladies and gentlemen, I can confirm we have just won the war against ornithology. Artent seen to nuts neat. 1868. 1868, a year that will live in infamy. The House of Representatives had had just impeached President Andrew Johnson for being as popular as a flatulent vicar at a silent retreat. The charge? Fiddling with Edwin Stanton's Secretary of War, and not in the good way. The Tenure of Office Act more like the Tenure to Annoy Us Act, if you ask me, was allegedly violated when Johnson sacked Stanton without so much as a by your leave or an I resign. This enraged congressmen, who were partial to Stanton's abilities. He knew how to filibuster, said one red-faced congressman. Johnson, known as Abe Lincoln's understudy, denied any wrongdoing, but it was clear he was up Sherman's Creek without a paddle. The trial began on this day, and gripped the nation like indigestion after chilly night at the White House canteen. Tensions ran higher than John Wilkes Booth during rehearsals for his one-man show, Assassinate Me If You Can. In the end, Johnson escaped by just one vote, thanks to one sympathetic senator whose name escapes me now. Alzheimer Kofstein, perhaps. 
Either way, it was enough to keep him in office until his term ended six months later, when Ulysses S. Grant took over and put an end to all this civil unrest nonsense by inventing cigarettes. News Bang, a wake-up call for the sleepwalkers of society. And now, to guide us through the maelstrom of meteorological oddities, here's the indomitable Shakanaka Giles. Tomorrow, in the southeast, expect a drizzle that's as persistent as a toddler demanding ice cream. It'll be a bit like a damp hug from a distant relative. Moving on to the Midlands, where the sun will peek through the clouds, much like the weird man hiding in your wardrobe. It'll be a balmy 10 degrees, so don't forget your scarf. In the north, brace yourselves for a blustery day. The wind will howl like a pack of wolves on a full moon night. Keep those hats firmly on your heads. And finally, in Scotland, it's going to be a right proper winter wonderland. Snow is forecast, so it's time to dust off those sledges and make some snow angels. In summary, a soggy hug, a shy sun, a wolfish wind and a snowy spectacle. And that's all the weather. In a shocking turn of events, the year 2022 has seen Russian forces unleash a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, reigniting the embers of conflict that have been smouldering since 2014. The devastating consequences have left the world reeling, with the human toll mounting and the environment bearing the brunt of the carnage. As the dust settles, Russia now occupies a staggering 20% of Ukrainian territory, and the crisis has sparked the most significant refugee exodus Europe has witnessed since the dark days of World War II. Now, for a closer look at the unfolding crisis, we turn to our reporter, Brian Bastable, who is currently stationed on the front lines of this heart-wrenching conflict. Martin Bang's handover. The war of 2022, the Russian forces onslaught, the attack on Ukraine, the conflict that's been brewing since 2014, the gunfire, the tanks, the bombardment, the casualties, the blood, the carnage, the slaughter, the desolation, the devastation, the wasteland, the devastation, the anguish, the pain, the loss, the grief, the horror, the tears, the tears, the tears. Here I am, crouched behind a rusty, dusty wall, the wind whistling through the gaping holes where windows once were, the wind that's howling, howling, howling like a banshee. My eyes are burning, my ears are ringing, my throat is raw. The smoke is choking me, the flames are scorching me, the dust is blinding me, the tanks are rumbling, the shells are flying, the bullets are ricocheting. The bombs are exploding, the rockets are blasting, the grenades are showering. The buildings are collapsing, the roads are crumbling, the bridges are falling. The power lines are down, the water pipes are burst, the gas mains are ruptured. The dead are lying, the wounded are screaming, the children are crying, the soldiers are fighting, the rebels are advancing, the militias are retreating, the smoke is rising, the dust is settling, the sun is setting. 
The day is ending, the night is falling, the stars are twinkling. The Russian forces are occupying, the Ukrainian forces are resisting, the world is watching, the world is watching, the world is watching. This is Brian Bastable Newsbang reporting from the war zone where the bullets are flying, the bombs are falling, and the blood is flowing. 1978. In a tale as confounding as the labyrinthine trails of Bidwell Park, the year 1978 bore witness to a peculiar mystery in Chico, California. Five men with intellectual disabilities vanished without a trace following a basketball game. The town, renowned for its college and expansive park, was left reeling. Four bodies were eventually discovered, but one man remains shrouded in enigma. And now to delve deeper into this enduring enigma, we turn to our correspondent, Ken Shit. Good evening, degenerates. As we delve into the dark annals of history, let's revisit the year 1978, a time when disco was king, bell-bottoms were the rage, and the world was rocked by a tragedy that still haunts the city of Chico, California. Five intellectually disabled gentlemen from Yuba County, a group as innocent as they were lovable, vanished into thin air after a friendly game of basketball. The community was left reeling, as four of these fine men were found brutally murdered, their lives snuffed out like candles in the wind. One man, however, remains missing to this day. His family and friends are left to wonder what could have happened to him, and whether he's still out there, somewhere, waiting to be found. The investigation into this heinous crime has been a twisted labyrinth of dead ends and false leads, leaving the families of the victims with little more than empty promises and a sense of profound despair. This is a case that screams for justice, a case that demands answers, and until those answers are found, the memory of these five men will continue to haunt the streets of Chico, a chilling reminder of the darkness that lurks beneath the surface of even the most seemingly idyllic of communities. As we continue to search for the truth, let us never forget the lives that were lost and the families that were torn apart by this senseless act of violence. This is Ken Shit, signing off for now, but always keeping a watchful eye on the world around us. May the light of justice shine brightly upon this tragic case, and may the perpetrators of this heinous crime be brought to justice one way or another. 1868 Now a flashback to 1868, when Andrew Johnson, the 17th US president, found himself in the political crosshairs. The House of Representatives impeached him for violating the Tenure of Office Act, specifically for removing Edwin Stanton as Secretary of War. The impeachment process began on February 24, 1868, with the primary charge being Johnson's actions regarding Stanton. Despite the accusations, Johnson managed to dodge the bullet, being acquitted in the Senate by a single vote. Now to delve deeper into this historical spectacle, we turn to our resident historian, Hardiman Pesto. Martin, I'm standing outside the White House on this historic day, February 24th, 1868. As you said, today the House of Representatives voted to impeach President Andrew Johnson. The mood here is solemn, with crowds gathering to discuss the monumental decision. Monumental, Pesto? Wasn't this impeachment a foregone conclusion, given Johnson's repeated clashes with Congress? Well, yes, tensions have been high, especially over the Tenure of Office Act, which Johnson violated 
by removing the Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. But still, impeaching a president is no small matter. Pesto, refresh our viewers' memories. What exactly is this Tenure of Office Act that Johnson has run afoul of? Well, Martin, the Act states that the President cannot remove certain office holders without the consent of Congress. In this case, Johnson removed Secretary of War Edwin Stanton without approval, leading to accusations he overstepped his constitutional authority. And what was Johnson's rationale for removing Stanton in the first place? Has he made any statement? He claimed Stanton was actively working against administration policies. But critics say this was just an excuse to put his own man in charge of reconstruction in the South. I see. So in a nutshell, Johnson thought Stanton was undermining him, gave him the boot illegally, and now faces impeachment as a result. You've got it, Martin. Although Johnson's supporters see this as a partisan move by radical Republicans in Congress to weaken the president. Yes, both sides seem convinced of the righteousness of their cause. But with Johnson now impeached, what happens next? Will he be removed from office? Not so fast, Martin. The impeachment trial will now move to the Senate, where a two-thirds vote is needed to convict and remove Johnson. With the Senate narrowly divided, it's no sure thing. This historic case could come right down to the wire. Fascinating stuff. We'll be watching closely to see if Andrew Johnson can avoid being the first president ever removed from office. Hardeman Pesto, reporting from the impeachment of Andrew Johnson in Washington. In 1942, in a landmark decision that has reshaped the American legal landscape, the year 1803 saw the establishment of judicial review in the United States. This revolutionary concept has granted courts the power to annul laws that infringe upon the Constitution. Marbury v. Madison, the seminal case, placed the Supreme Court as the ultimate arbiter of constitutionality. Acts of Congress must now pass through both legislative chambers and receive the presidential signature to become law. And in this edition of Newsbang, we've asked our resident American correspondent, Melody Wintergreen, to provide a more in-depth analysis of this momentous decision. Melody, take it away. The year is 1803, and the United States Supreme Court is making history. Today, Chief Justice John Marshall presides over Marbury v. Madison, a case that will forever change the course of American jurisprudence. The air in the courtroom is thick with anticipation as the gavel falls, echoing through the hallowed halls of justice. At the heart of this landmark case is William Marbury, a man appointed to a position by outgoing President John Adams, only to have his commission withheld by incoming Secretary of State James Madison. It's a tale of political intrigue and constitutional conundrums that could only unfold in the young republic's highest court. As Marshall prepares to deliver his decision, one can't help but feel the weight of history pressing down upon us. The question at hand, does the Supreme Court have the power to review acts of Congress and determine their constitutionality? In a twist worthy of a Shakespearean drama, Marshall declares that while Marbury has a right to his commission, the court cannot enforce it due to an unconstitutional provision in the Judiciary Act of 1789. With this ruling, Marshall has masterfully established the principle of judicial review, granting the Supreme Court ultimate authority in interpreting the Constitution. 
Across town at Ye Olde Tavern, local pundit Benjamin Benny Bickerstaff offers his two cents on this judicial jamboree. Marshall's maneuvering is nothing short of genius, he opines over a pint of ale. He's given the court a power not explicitly stated in the Constitution. It's like he pulled a rabbit out of his judicial hat. As we leave this momentous day behind us, one thing is clear. Marbury vs. Madison has set a precedent that will echo through centuries. In this grand game of checks and balances, it seems Marshall has just made checkmate. So as America's fledgling democracy takes flight, it's clear that the Supreme Court has been handed the constitutional compass, and with Marshall at the helm, it's full steam ahead into uncharted waters. This is Melody Wintergreen, reporting for Newsbang from the Steps of History. We turn our attention to the annals of World War II, where the skies above Los Angeles in 1942 became a canvas for a most perplexing spectacle. A flurry of unidentified flying objects, initially mistaken for Japanese aggressors, sparked a barrage of anti-aircraft artillery fire. A testament to the enduring enigma of the skies, the incident remains shrouded in mystery. And now Bertrand Spitfire, our all-seeing historian, will guide us through the intricacies of anti-aircraft warfare, the strategic response to aerial threats, and the crucial role aircraft played in the global conflict that was World War II. It was the year 1942, and the Earth was knee-deep in a conflict they dubbed World War II, a time when nations formed alliances like schoolyard cliques, with the Allies and Axis playing a deadly game of cosmic dodgeball. In this global squabble, aircraft took center stage, transforming from gentle birds of peace into fearsome warhawks. They rained down destruction with strategic bombings and even harnessed the atom's power, creating weapons so devastating they could turn entire cities into radioactive parking lots. On that fateful February night, unidentified flying objects graced the skies above Los Angeles. The city's defenders, perhaps still jittery from too much caffeine or too little sleep, mistook these visitors for a Japanese attack. The resulting anti-aircraft barrage was a spectacle of lights and sounds, as if the heavens themselves were putting on a fireworks display. But as dawn broke, the truth emerged. It was all a false alarm. The mysterious objects vanished as quickly as they appeared, leaving behind only questions and a sky filled with smoke. Some speculated they were extraterrestrial visitors, while others believed it was merely a weather balloon or a flock of confused birds. Whatever the case, the Battle of Los Angeles served as a reminder that even in times of war, the universe still holds mysteries waiting to be unraveled. As we leave this tale, let us ponder the peculiarities of existence, whether it's the folly of war or the enigma of unidentified flying objects. After all, life in the cosmos is a grand adventure, filled with twists and turns that would make even the most seasoned spacefarer's head spin. Cheers.
News Bang, the daily dose of truth, served with a twist of humour. Unleash your inner time traveller as we journey back to 1989, where roads and skies are abuzz with the unexpected. Polly Beep takes us on a wild ride through history's traffic headlines. up, dear road warriors, as we're about to time travel back to 1989. In Honolulu, it's a wild ride for United Airlines Flight 811. They've sprung a leak, causing seats to go flying like popcorn. Nine passengers were tragically caught in the whirlwind, but miraculously, the aircraft returned to Honolulu International Airport, named after Medal of Honor recipient Daniel Inouye, and landed safely. Keep your eyes peeled for those runaway seats. Meanwhile, on the streets of London, it's a mad dash as the iconic red double-decker buses have morphed into bumper cars. Pedestrians are encouraged to dodge, duck, dip, dive and dodge to avoid becoming an unwilling participant in this chaotic spectacle. In New York City, traffic has come to a standstill as the Empire State Building has taken a page from the Leaning Tower of Pisa's book and is now swaying precariously. Commuters are advised to take the subway or risk becoming a part of a real-life game of Jenga. And finally, in a bizarre turn of events, the Great Wall of China has suddenly sprouted legs and is now strolling through Beijing's city centre. Motorists are urged to exercise caution and give the wall a wide berth. Stay tuned for more traffic updates from the past, present and who knows? News bang, cutting through the fog of deception with a machete of factuality. 1607. Today, in the annals of musical history, a celestial symphony of notes unfurled from the quill of Italian maestro Claudio Monteverdi. His groundbreaking opera, L'Orfeo, graced the ears of fortunate Mantuans during their annual carnival. Monteverdi, a luminary in the transition from the Renaissance to the Baroque era, wove the Greek legend of Orpheus into a tapestry of sound. L'Orfeo, a testament to the power of music in theatre, continues to resonate in the hearts of opera aficionados. And now, to delve deeper into the mystique of this epical composition, we turn to our culture correspondent, Smithsonia Moss. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, culture vultures. It's your main muse, Smithsonia Moss, crash landing into your living room with a tale that's older than your grandma's grandma's grandma. Buckle up, buttercups, because we're time traveling to 1607 when the world was in black and white and the hottest ticket in town was to an opera. Yeah, you heard me, Oprah. So there's this Italian stallion, Claudio Monteverdi, right? And he's like, I'm going to write the first ever opera that people will still bang on about centuries later. And bam! He drops L'Orfeo in Mantua, and the crowd goes wild. I mean, this was the Beyoncé Coachella of 1607. L'Orfeo is all about this dude Orpheus, who's got pipes that could make a siren call in sick. He's singing his heart out, trying to bring his dead girlfriend back from the underworld. Spoiler alert, it doesn't go well. But the music... That stuff is fire. Now, Monteverdi, he's not just a one-hit wonder. Nah, he's the bridge from the Renaissance to the Baroque period. Like, 
if music history was a bar crawl, Monteverdi's the guy who knows all the bouncers and gets you into the VIP section. And get this, L'Orfeo was performed during Carnival. Imagine Mardi Gras with less beads and more lutes. The whole town of Mantua was lit, and not just because they were burning witches at the stake. They were high on harmonies, baby. Fast forward to 2024, and we're still talking about it. That's staying power, folks. L'Orfeo is like the thriller of the 17th century, except everyone's in tights and nobody's doing the moonwalk. So next time you think opera is just for your nana, remember Monteverdi. He made opera cool before your ancestors could spell cool. And Mantua? It's still there, probably still recovering from the after party. That's it from me, Smithsonian Moss, dropping the mic on the OG opera. Keep it locked on Newsbang for all the throwbacks and comebacks. Newsbang, a shot of reality in the arm of the people. Three Welcome back to Newsbang, where we've taken a trip through the annals of history to the year 303. Emperor Diocletian, also known as Jovius, decided to unleash the Diocletianic persecution, the last and most brutal persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. This series of edicts revoked Christians' legal rights and forced them to comply with traditional religious practices. The intensity of persecution varied across the empire, but it all ended with the Edict of Milan in 313. And now, to delve deeper into this tale of religious strife and imperial power, we turn to our resident pastor, Kevin Monstrance. Thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be back on the old wireless, regaling you fine folks with tales from times past. Speaking of past times, this chilly February weather puts me in mind of that winter I spent in the Alps back in 79. Got lost on an unmarked slope and had to hunker down in an igloo with a St. Bernard named Claude, who had a passion for cribbage. We passed three days together before the ski patrol found us. Claude ate all my emergency pemmican, but he was a delightful chap otherwise. But I digress. Tonight I transport you back to the year 303 AD, when a certain Diocletian was emperor of Rome. Now Diocletian was a military man through and through. Worked his way up through the ranks until he clinched the top job. Sort of like a Roman John Major, but with fancier robes. Anyway, once in power, Diocletian decided he wasn't too keen on these Christians popping up all over his empire. Seemed a bit too challenging to his authority for his liking. So he kicked off what came to be known as the Diocletianic Persecution, essentially an all-out assault on Christian practices across the empire. Started with taking away Christians' legal rights and just escalated from there. His underlings would raid churches, confiscate holy texts, even force Christians to sacrifice to Roman gods under pain of torture or death. A right bloody mess it was, by all accounts. Reminds me of a joke I heard from old Deacon Eustace after one too many sacramental wines one evening. Seems there was a Roman centurion named Flavius who was leading a raid on a small church outside of Rome. He bursts through the doors in full battle regalia and roars, All right, which one of you Christians is in charge here? <laughs> the cowering parishioners point to the priest, Father Aloysius, 
who steps forward timidly. Flavius grabs him by the robes and sneers, Today is your lucky day, priest. All you need to do is offer a simple sacrifice to Almighty Jupiter, and you and your people can walk free. Dot. <laughs> Father Aloysius gulps nervously. B but we are devout followers of Christ here. I'm afraid I cannot offer pagan sacrifice. Flavius draws his sword. Last chance, priest. Sacrifice or its curtains for the lot of you. <laughs> At this, Aloysius falls to his knees, raises his hands skyward and cries, O oh, mighty Jupiter, please accept this humble sacrifice. That's more like it, says Flavius with a satisfied smirk. Yes, please accept the sacrifice of my church, my parishioners. And Flavius here too, he's all yours, cries Aloysius triumphantly. <laughs> well, old Deacon Eustace thought this was comedy gold, though I dare say Flavius found it less amusing. But it reminds us that faith can overcome even the mightiest oppression when delivered with a healthy dose of cheek, something to ponder this chilly night. <laughs> And now, a final roundup of tomorrow's front pages before we sign off. The Guardian. Marcos booted out. Aquino steps in. There's a photo there of a shoe. The Times. Lord Paulette says aloha to Hawaiian takeover. They've got a cartoon of a man in a top hat with a surfboard. And the Telegraph. Revels in the Senate. Mississippi man makes history. There's a sketch there of the capital. That's it. On the day that a tree in the forest fell over and nobody heard it. Because the area was evacuated due to a squirrel with a megaphone. Good night, and remember, if news is what you want, bang on with Newsbang. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.